Absolutely no pressure after that introduction. Yeah. Thanks for your kind words. And you notice how well he walked up here and walked out after a knee, sur- knee replacement? Very good. God's been answering our prayers. We appreciate that. Well, have you ever struggled with believing that you're forgiven? Have you ever tried, uh, ever felt like you needed to wallow in some guilt for a little bit so you somehow punished yourself so you could feel like you deserved God's forgiveness? You have a hard time believing that when you've committed that sin, you, f- you swore to God 409 times you'd never do that again and you do it again and you think this time the statute of limitations for God's forgiveness has run out on me. He's never going to forgive me for that one. Somehow you've crossed the line. Well, our passage today speaks to those issues and many more. And I want you to, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 John, the letter of 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5. If you have uh, your phone and you've got a Bible app on that, turn there, or you can read it up on the screen as well. 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5, to chapter 2, verse 2. This is what John says. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, from this passage, I want to pose a question and and focus on trying to answer this question from what John tells us. And the question is, how can we as sinful human beings maintain a relationship with a holy, righteous God? And the first thing that John reveals to us here, and by the way, on the back of your bulletins there, you got sermon notes. I'm I'm a fill-in-the-blank guy, so you even have blanks to fill in today. Okay. The first thing that John reveals to us is the dilemma. We have a dilemma. God is light, and we are not. God is light, and we are not. John affirms who God is. He is light. And even if we know Jesus... Even if we've been forgiven, we know there's still darkness in us. We know that instinctively. We're not God. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now light in John's gospel and in his three letters that he writes to us, It's a picture, it's a metaphor for the holiness, the righteousness, the purity, the truth of God. He's light. Darkness, in contrast, is sin, it's evil, it's deception, it's corruption. And God is all light. John says there's no darkness at all in him. There's 
there's nothing that is unholy, unrighteous, impure, evil, or false in God. Are you all light as well? Are you all holiness and purity and truth? Me neither. None of us are, right? We don't measure up to God. We're not exactly like Him. How then can we maintain a relationship with this holy, righteous, pure God who is light? Well, the second thing John shows us from this passage is the true test of our relationship with God. Life change. Life change. As much as uh, Pastor John and, and me as a retired pastor and the elders and everybody else who's in leadership would tell you, worship's really important. You need to be faithful in attendance and worship. It's, it's the place where we gather. It's the place where we hear God's word every week and so forth. But you know what? John tells us attending worship's not enough. It's not enough. Believing the right doctrines is not enough. John says in 1 John 1, 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. And the word translated walk here means literally to take a journey, to go about. It, it's a metaphor, it's a, it's a synonym for live. If we claim I've got fellowship with God, but then we live in the darkness. We keep on sinning and we keep on living as if Jesus wasn't with us at all. We lie. John makes it very clear that words alone do not bring fellowship with God. A true relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I surrender my life to him. That's, that's, a true, that's the beginning of a true relationship with God. That relationship will produce life change. I will be different. And if there's no life change, then John is calling into question our relationship with God. Are you the same now as you were five years ago? Are you more like Jesus today than you were last year at this time? Or two years ago, or five years ago, or those of us who are much older, 40 years ago? I have enough experience to, to know that there have been people that I've known in church, they've been church attenders 20, 30, 40 years, and they are the same crotchety, judgmental, nasty people as they were 40 years ago. There's been no life change. And what John says is maybe they need to come to Jesus because they never have. Oh, they've come to church. The great reformer Martin Luther said, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. A righteous life naturally follows from accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. And if anyone claims to have fellowship with God but walks in the darkness, then since God is light, he or she lies. Those who walk in the darkness what happens to them? Well, they don't know where they're going. You ever been in a dark room and you can't find the lights? And you, what do you, you're bumping into things. You forgot about that chair or that coffee table was there and, and so forth. Well, relationally, you're bumping into people. You're causing conflict. You don't know how to get out of it. It's a mess. But on the other hand, those who walk in the light 
we can see the obstacle. We can avoid those collisions with other people. We know how to reconcile with people and so forth. Just affirming Jesus is God. I believe Jesus is God. Well, so does the devil. You ever think about that? That doesn't mean he surrendered his life to Christ. Just believing Jesus is God does nothing. I need to acknowledge. What do I do? I need to acknowledge, first of all, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior and surrender my life to Jesus as Lord of my life. Then I cooperate with him to change me, to make me more like him, someone who walks and lives in the light, someone who does the will of God. And if I do that, what happens? John tells us in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. See, walking or living in the light is not just being a nice person. There's plenty of nice people in the world. They're pagans. They don't know Christ, but they're nice. That's not enough. It's living in the light as Jesus is in the light. Otherwise, in other words, living the Christian life is all about becoming more and more like Jesus every day. Now, there are going to be fits and starts, and sometimes it feels like you take three steps forward and two steps back. Sometimes you're going to be very close to the Lord. It seems like He's right there. Your relationship is tight, and other times you're rebellious and stubborn and far away from Him. But over time, John implies there will be steady progress to become more and more and more like Jesus. That's walking in the light. And notice what John says. If we walk in the light, then we're going to have fellowship with one another. Now, when I read that at first, I thought, well, I would have expected him to say, if we walk in the light, we'll have fellowship with God. And that's true. But he focuses on our fellowship with one another. He links our relationship with God to our relationship with our fellow believers in the church. Why? Because Jesus said the two greatest commandments were love God first and then love your neighbor. One cannot separate the two. They're inextricably linked. And John implies the evidence for us walking in the light, becoming more and more like Jesus, is our relationship with our fellow Christians. Well, how's your relationship with your fellow Christians? How's it doing? If it's pretty strained and not doing too well, maybe you need to examine whether you're walking in the light. Later on in, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 to 21, John says this, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John says when we walk in the light, when we have fellowship with our fellow believers, something even greater happens. The blood of Jesus, his son, keeps on purifying us. Jesus, the blood of Jesus just simply means his death for us, giving his life for us. And when we walk in fellowship with one another and with God, when we're walking in the light, we can, God says, I'm going to continually, I forgive you once and for all, but I'm going to continually purify you because of what my son did on the cross. 
We are once for all forgiven, but continually purified and renewed by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And you think, well, well, what if, I mean, can God's forgiveness run out on me? You know, like the statute of limitations. I, I swore I'd never do that again, and I did it again and again and again and again. Doesn't God get tired of me confessing the same thing over and over and over to him? Doesn't he run out of patience sometimes? At our house, we have a well that supplies our water, and it's, I, I looked it up again yesterday, and it's drilled to 425 feet, and it, uh, or I'm sorry, 245 feet. There we go. That's a little better. And it pumps out 30 gallons a minute. That's pretty good. And it's possible, however unlikely, but it is possible in a very, very severe drought that the well would begin to slow down. The water table would sink too far. And maybe in the worst of the worst of the worst circumstances, it would dry up. Now, I pray that that never happens, but it's possible. But what about God's forgiveness? You know, in God, in, in Jesus, God's forgiveness is like an infinite well that never runs dry. And we think, oh, surely I've used up all my cards here, and God won't forgive me for that. And we look down, and out comes living water again and again and again and again. God's forgiveness, His grace, never runs out. Never. The third thing John shows us about how we maintain a relationship with a holy and righteous God is the ongoing battle. We have an ongoing battle. That is we st- our struggle against sin. We're saved. We're forgiven. Heaven's our destiny. We're still struggling with sin. We still have these bodies, which are born in sin and will die in sin. Our spirits are re- alive and renewed, but, <sighs> you know, someday right? Someday I'm going to get a new body. No more gravity effects. It'll be wonderful. Why is John saying this about our struggle with sin? Some in John's day were mistaken about the resurrection, and they were claiming that, well, since Christians have the Holy Spirit living in us through faith in Jesus, then then I'm no longer capable of even sinning. I'm, I'm free. I'm resurrected already. Everything's wonderful. I don't have to struggle with sin anymore. And John shows us, in fact, that no, we still sin. In 1 John 1.8, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Even with the Holy Spirit in us to help us, to guide us, to, to help us walk in the light, we still struggle with sin. Our struggle's not yet over. It's not going to be over until the day we're resurrected, until the day we die and go to heaven and are with him eternally, or if we're alive when Jesus comes back, we're immediately resurrected, and boom, there it is. But to say that we have no sin makes it impossible for God's truth to live in us. You know, you look at modern fallacies, sometimes psychology and other things claim that, well, sin is like a disease. It's a disease. It's, it's a weakness. It's, it's, it's due to heredity or environment or something else all to designed to get us to say, well, it's not my fault. Sin's not my fault. Something else did it to me. John says, if that's what you believe, you're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself. The truth is, if we can't acknowledge we are sinners 
before a holy God and, ha- we, and have no hope of ever standing before God, holy and righteous on our own, then the gospel cannot reach us. The more I read the New Testament, the more I read the Bible, the more I think it through, the more convinced I am, I have to accept the bad news about myself, that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, before I can accept the good news of Jesus, that he died and rose for me and paid for my sins, and I can have salvation if I trust my life to him. That's why Jesus started with it, Paul started with it, Peter started with it. Whenever they started with the gospel, they said the first word was, repent. And if I have to repent, I have to recognize, you know what? I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I can't measure up. I can't get to God from here. There's no way I can measure up. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I have to admit that I'm broken before God can heal me of my sin through Jesus. Still others were in denial that they had sinned. They they couldn't recognize it in themselves. Even their own pride or something else blocked that. And so John says they show that God's word was not functioning in their lives. 1 John 1.10 says if we claim we've not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. You know, it's not a good thing to call God a liar. That's probably something you want to avoid. In the first church I served in uh, northeast Tacoma in Washington, Washington State. I met a young man. He's just a little bit younger than I was, and I was fresh out of seminary then, you know, mid-20s. I was going to tame the world. <laughs> little did I know. Um, and we became friends. We shared a lot of the same things. I'll call him Frank, although that's not his real name. And we enjoyed a lot of the same things. We loved science fiction novels and fantasy novels like Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, and all that, and loved backpacking. And, and Frank and I became very fast friends and very close. And then about a couple of years later, I I kept looking for him on Sunday morning. I I didn't see him. And I thought, what's happened to Frank? What's going on? And then a friend, a mutual friend of mine told me that Frank had joined this, this small group. It was sort of like a little mini church. And that small group was teaching stuff that was a little fuzzy, let's just say, a little off. And I got pretty concerned. And I finally ran into him one day. And we were able to catch up with one another about what was going on in our lives and so forth. And and finally, the conversation steered to uh, what was going on in Frank's faith. And then Frank looked at me and he said said this. You know, I haven't consciously sinned in over a month. And and I I looked at him like, what? Can Can you repeat that? Yeah, I haven't consciously sinned in over a month. And inside my head, I was thinking, well, you just did. Because his pride and his arrogance and the false teaching that somehow, you know, even if we're filled with the Spirit, somehow, well, we're just immune from sin now, he didn't see it. And he was deceiving himself. His pride had clouded his judgment. The fourth thing John tells us from our passage, how we can maintain a relationship with a holy and righteous God is our hope for restoration, confession, and assurance. We are forgiven, but we still sin. 
So what hope have we then? If I still sin, I'm forgiven, but I still sin, how, how can I maintain this relationship with God? Well, John tells us what to do. 1 John 1, 9 tells us what to do. I need to confess. I need to confess my sins. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, the word confess literally means to speak as one, to use the same language. And so it began to be seen as or translated as admit, agree with, acknowledge, and then finally confess. I agree with God about the truth of my sins. When I did that, Lord, I, I sinned. I messed up. I need your forgiveness. I admit them. I confess them to God. Now, what I've found, however, over the years is the problem with this very famous verse, because lots of people, lots of Christians quote this all the time. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's often misunderstood. And it gets misinterpreted to mean confessing our sins is like a precondition for our forgiveness. Thus, if I don't confess and admit every sin that I committed over the last couple of days or weeks or whatever it is, then God isn't going to forgive me. If I don't confess it, he's not going to forgive me. And that leads to prayers of confession that add lines like, Lord, I confess all the sins that I didn't even know I was committing, so you can forgive me for those too. If that's true, then my forgiveness depends on my work. I need to confess. If I didn't confess, God's not going to forgive me. That's conditional for my forgiveness. That's not what the Bible says. How do I know that? Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, justified is just a fancy word, Bible word, preacher word, Christian word, the easiest way for me to remember it is just as if I'd never sinned. We're justified. God looks at you if you know Jesus and he doesn't see your sin. And it's a done deal. We have been justified. Once I receive Jesus into my life, I'm forgiven, period. Done. Once for all. No other conditions because it's grace. Later in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. No condemnation. There's no punishment. When you don't feel forgiven, you don't have to whip yourself you know, into a frenzy of guilt and so forth so somehow you can feel worthy because God's already forgiven you. Why? Because of what Jesus did on the cross and rising again for us. But as I was examining this passage this week, I realized the very grammar of 1 John 1, 9 speaks against taking confessing our sins as a condition of our forgiveness. So here's my translation of 1 John 1, 9. Hopefully this clarifies a little bit. We're about ready to go deep in the weeds of a grammar lesson, okay? You remember eighth grade English and so forth. Some of you do. 
my translation, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what's this mean? This is a conditional sentence. If this is true, then this follows. Okay, that's a conditional sentence. This whole passage of 1 John 1, 5 to 2, 2 is filled with if-then sentences, conditional sentences. And it begins with an if, and there's an implied then in the second clause of that sentence. But the Greek grammar tells us that the then, if we confess our sins, then comes before faithful and just, not before he forgives us. And the last phrase, so that he forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, tells us the result of God being faithful to his word and just. What's it mean? God can be thoroughly relied upon when we confess our sins because he's faithful and just. If we confess our sins, then he's faithful and just. What's the result? He forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. God can be thoroughly relied on. His promise is faithful. It's sure. Those who put their trust in him will not be left down. Those who come to him will not be cast out. Well, if confessing our sins isn't a condition for our forgiveness, then what's it for? It's for restoring our relationship and fellowship with our Heavenly Father. Now, this is a totally hypothetical example because I want you to know this doesn't happen. Maybe I can count on one hand the times this has actually happened. If I have a fight with my wife, Betty, okay, am I still married? Well, yeah, I hope so. I better be. Yes, of course I am because our fight doesn't change the fundamental nature of our fellowship. We are still husband and wife. But how's the condition and health of our relationship? Well, it's strained, right? The fight doesn't mean I'm no longer Betty's husband, but the fight puts a strain between our relationship. We're out of fellowship with one another, even though we're still married. The status hasn't changed, but the health of our relationships change. It's strained. So what do I do? What needs to happen to restore that fellowship? Well, we need to make up, which usually means I need to apologize. <laughs> right? Now, the same is true for our relationship with God. But remember, when we get out of sync with our Heavenly Father, when we sin, when we're willful and stubborn and rebellious and do something we shouldn't do, we're always the one at fault. God never needs to apologize to us. Why? Because he's light and in him is no darkness at all. God never needs to apologize. Confession, God gave us confession so that we can take a step back towards him to restore our relationship with him. We can repair it. We can do something to maintain our relationship with God. Now, that's, it's not a work. It's a means. It's a means of grace, if you will. God gives us grace when we confess our sins. He's faithful and just. And the result is he's going to forgive us, always. When we agree with God, 
over our sins, we come back into fellowship with him. It seems like that's it? Yes, that's it. It's like apologizing. Now the relationship is healed again. It's restored. But John doesn't stop there. He goes on to reassure us about God's forgiveness. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 says this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. And literally, the word is an advocate, a defense attorney. It's the same word that, so when it says, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, that long phrase in the NIV, which is the Bible I'm using, means defense attorney, it means advocate. It's the same word in Greek, paraclete, that John uses, or Jesus uses in John 14 and 15, naming the Holy Spirit, the helper, the the advocate for us. Here in this context, he's calling Jesus our defense attorney. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours also, but but also for the sins of the whole world. He writes, he says, so that we may not sin. But if we do, our case is not hopeless. We have a defense attorney. We have an advocate who speaks to the judge, God the Father, on our account. Who is he? He's Jesus Christ, the righteous one, our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah. And get this, he's never lost a case. And he's not going to start with you. Because you're forgiven. Jesus is the one who laid down his life for us. John calls him the atoning sacrifice. If you read the New King James, it had an even fancier word. He's the propitiation. Woo, that's a Bible word. What's it mean? It means the one who turns away God's holy wrath against our sin. Remember, he's light. He can't stand any darkness at all. He can't abide the darkness of sin. But Jesus' death for us on the cross turns away God's wrath. His death for us on the cross pays for all of our sin. His resurrection pays, finishes the job. You are once for all, forever forgiven. Now instead of wrath, we find forgiveness. Instead of judgment, we find grace. Instead of despair, we find hope. Instead of condemnation, we find salvation in Jesus Christ. And John assures us that because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, we are forgiven. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're forgiven. Not because of anything we've done, but wholly because of what Jesus has done for us. And when you sin, when you feel guilty, you don't need to wonder whether, oh my gosh, is God going to forgive me this time? You know what the answer is? Absolutely. Even more so, the Bible says he already has because you're justified. We're completely and totally cleansed from the guilt and stain of sin. And when you feel guilt now, part of what you're feeling is the Holy Spirit inside of you going, confess, come on, get back right with me, keep short accounts with me, come on, you can do it. And the longer we wait... 
the more that conviction grows. You ever been there? You know what that feels like? I have. So keep short accounts from God, for God, from, uh, with God so that you can remain in fellowship with Him and walk in the light. In the church I grew up in, we had a time of confession, silent confession, and at the end of that time, the pastor would stand up and in the bulletin it always said the assurance of pardon, which was just like affirming we're forgiven. That's what I want to do as we end this morning. So I want to spend some time in silent prayer before God, first of all, and use this couple of moments to confess your sins with the Lord. Get right with Him. Get back into fellowship with Him. Agree with God. Yeah, that thing I did, that thing I said, that, those thoughts I was having, that, that was wrong, Lord. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And then at the end of that time, I'm going to, I want to share a scripture with you that reaffirms the truth of God's forgiveness to us through what Jesus has done for us. So let's just spend a few moments in silence and prayer and confession. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and just so that you forgive our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't have to worry about whether we're forgiven or not. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Stand if you're able, please. I want to read to you from Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Listen to what Paul says. And receive this as, as an assurance that you are forgiven. What then should we say in response to all this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Believe God's word. In Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Amen. Let's worship God.